Good morning again. So really great to share with you this morning. Hope you've had a good weekend so far. I've been away doing some Monroe's with Steve McLeister and Kenny Roy, who go to our church. I'd love to say that the old boys struggled to keep up with me. That would be a complete lie. I'm absolutely knackered. They are so fit. It's incredible. And I was tempted to sort of contact Zach this morning and say, would you mind if I just streamed in from my bed and try and sort of share something? Because I'm pretty whacked. But it's great to be here. And it's great to be participating in this series around the big story and looking at the journey through Scripture and how it all pieces together. And I don't know about you, but I find it really helpful to see how starting with creation and the fall and the prophets and the kings and the people of God and the church being formed and Jesus being absolutely central and core, really interesting and really exciting. And it's just great to sort of see the journey. And what's happening now is we're moving to Revelation. It's a book right at the end of the Bible, and it's the one part of Scripture, really, that looks ahead. The rest of it is sort of told the story thus far, but this is looking ahead, and it's trying to explain to us what the end times will be like. And it's complex because when we think of end times, it creates many questions, some trivial questions like, will there be wasps in heaven? Will there be wasps in the afterlife? Can we run through walls? What does it look like in the afterlife? Will there be football? But perhaps more serious questions, what about this loved one or what about will I be married in the afterlife? There's some questions that arise and what we realize quite clearly in the book of Revelation is that there's a lot of metaphorical and symbolic language. It's called apocalyptic. I can never say that word, apocalyptic language, that's one. Thinking of the end times, thinking of what happens in the afterlife but it's deliberately meant to leave some ambiguity. It's deliberately meant to be symbolism and help us think through what it's like, but not give a clear and vivid and exact picture. I think that's deliberate because I'm not sure we're meant to know exactly how things will unfold. I'm not sure our human minds can comprehend exactly how God works. I'm not sure if we did know every detail of the afterlife and what happens next, we'd actually be ready to receive that. I think there's some deliberate ambiguity there and some deliberate, deliberate unknowns are actually helpful and remind us that God is God and we're not. I love what Evelyn Underhill says, if God was small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. If God was small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. I love that. There's some stuff that we'll never know this side of eternity. And yes, we have a glimpse and a snippet as we open the book of Revelation. Equally, it will continue to raise as many questions as it does give answers. So let's turn to Revelation 21 from verse 1 to 8. If you haven't got a Bible, it's totally fine. I'll read it to us. And it's also worth saying that if you're new to church or new to being around Central, you are most welcome. But I would not necessarily pick this passage for today, but hopefully you get a glimmer of just the incredible love that Jesus has for you because he wants to meet with you this morning, no matter how much of this you understand or don't understand. So Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first time in the first earth has passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be there with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. 
He said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from a spring of the water of life. For those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will bear their God and will be my children. So I'll be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and liars, they will be consigned to a fiery lake of burning sulfur. Lovely. This is the second death. Why don't I pray for us quickly just as we unpack this. Lord, whether we have never looked at the Bible or we've looked at it many times, whether we've never been to church or we've been around church for many years, I pray that you would speak to us individually and as a church family in a really significant way this morning. I pray that you would open up a new insight into who you are and what you've done for us and develop our intimacy with you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I don't know about you, but as I read this passage, I'm just blown away by the beautiful imagery in it. I'm blown away by the fact it's just a place of sheer beauty, of streams of life refreshing the thirsty, the description of the bride being prepared for her husband. I just find it quite almost mouth-watering in terms of how incredible the kind of descriptions are. It's almost like that hair's standing on the ends, just kind of, it's just so beautiful and just such majestic imagery. But what's most important is in this passage, we see that God dwells amongst his people. God permanently dwells amongst his people. You see, when we think of the story of scripture, we realize that at the outset, God walked with people. And then Adam and Eve sinned and people sinned. And therefore, we had to have a relationship with God where he was through his priests and his prophets that the priests would go to the temple and sacrifice on behalf of his people. And then we see the different people speaking to God through the prophets and the kings. And then Jesus came to earth and walked amongst the people. He walked alongside them and inaugurated his kingdom. His presence meant that the blind could see, that the lame were healed, that people came to know him, people saw him face to face. And that same power was left with the Spirit and the same power was left for his believers to have direct access to the Spirit, so the Spirit worked through his people. But you and I both know that although Jesus came to earth and gave us that access to the Spirit and that the supernatural power of heaven can work in and through us, we know there's still suffering and sin and pain and struggle until he fully returns. Because one day he will dwell with us. He will fully dwell amongst the people. We're reading the story from the garden to the city, from a beginning where Adam and Eve walked with God right through to the end where we will walk with God in perfect harmony. He will dwell amongst his people. Eternity will be permanently in his presence, in his glory. God's presence and his glory comes to our world forevermore. So if this is true, if one day we will be with God and he will dwell with us forevermore, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for you and I this morning? What does that mean for us tomorrow when we step into our workplace? I think one of the key things, and if not one of the most significant messages, I think, to the church around the world, particularly in the West, is how do we live with an eternal perspective? How do we allow this image and understanding of eternity to shape how we live now? If we're going to be with God for eternity, if we're going to be with him forevermore, if life on earth is relatively speaking a blink, then surely it matters what the values of eternity are and how they shape how we live today. And we struggle with that in our instant culture, don't we? I mean, even the concept of holding a job for all our life is a tricky one now because we have a job for two, three years and often move on. 
We like to have things instantly. We struggle even in this life to think about the longevity of things. So therefore, to think eternally just blows our mind. And often we think, well, let's not even embrace that. Let's not even engage with that conversation because it's much easier to think about here and now. But if this is true, that one day we will dwell with God forevermore, then surely what we see in this shapes how we live now. As I was sort of praying in the mountains over the last few days, I was just thinking about this preach. And this metaphor, this illustration is not perfect, but I was just aware that as I was climbing with the rose and absolutely shattered, at some points, because of my lack of fitness, I was literally like counting 50 steps, pausing, getting a breath, counting 50 steps. And you could barely see because of the mist and just absolutely shattered and struggling on. But then when you get to the top, you see the views, you see why you've got there, and suddenly everything makes a lot more sense. Suddenly you realize why the hard work has paid off. When we have a look from Jesus' perspective, from this eternal perspective, it shapes how we live now. Paul repeatedly says we are to fix our eyes on what is unseen and eternal. So how do we do this? I want to suggest this morning that there's three ways, I'm sure there's others, but three ways we can think about living with an eternal perspective. How do we have faith, freedom, and focus? Faith, freedom, and focus. So firstly, how does this shape our faith here on earth? We need to realize that this letter wasn't written to God's people to explain the afterlife. This wasn't meant to be the handbook on what the afterlife looks like. This was written to a people who were being persecuted, who were struggling, who life was really difficult. And this isn't just like bad. This isn't just a theory of persecution. These guys are being sawn in half, fed to wild animals, crucified upside down, chucked into fires. You could understand them why they might want to give up. You can understand why they might want to just forget about it and give up. This was brutally tough. As we think about our own journey, for many of us in this pandemic, it's really questioned, can we keep going? Can we keep fighting? Jesus even says that you are in this life, you will have troubles. If you follow me in this life, you will have troubles. It's one of those few promises. It's not, a, it's not the promise we want to receive, but it's there. We will have troubles. There will be persecution. There will be struggles. And it says in Scripture, it says in Revelation, until the beast, the devil, is defeated once and for all, until Jesus comes and returns and conquers it once and for all, there will be struggle, there will be pain, there will be suffering. So John was writing to the people here and saying, what you need to do amidst this incredible hardship is imagine what your life after death will look like. Picture it, imagine it, dream it, believe it one day for eternity you are going to face this incredible recreator. You're going to be part of this incredible recreated world. Throughout Revelation, we see that John refers to the afterlife eternity in words like, it's like gold, it's like sapphire, it's like the rubies, because he's trying to help us understand how beautiful and significant it is, but also recognize that it's, it's in a way that we just cannot comprehend just yet. It's like it, but it's greater than that. You can't give a full picture. He's trying to help us, but he also recognizes it's far more beautiful, far more significant, far more wonderful than you could possibly imagine. So when you're suffering, think about the fact that the eternal destination is one of incredible beauty and hope. And also when you're suffering, we see in this passage, 
Recognize that you'll walk with him forevermore. Recognize that because God is fully present, there'll be no more tears and pain and suffering and struggles and hardship and death. The things that just weigh us down, the things that completely knock us to six in this life will be gone one day. One day, the pain and suffering will be no more. It says there'll be no more sea. And if you're disappointed to hear that and worried about your holiday to Margate, it's not saying that. What it's saying is that the sea is a description of the fear and chaos and danger because the attacks came from sea. And it was saying that will be no longer. There'll be no more fear and chaos and danger. Sin and suffering and pain will be no more. Because when God lives amongst his people, there's no room for anything that isn't perfect or beautiful. When we realize that for those of us who follow Jesus we're with him forevermore, it gives us hope and strength for today. Again, uh, an, an illustration that may or may not be helpful, but for many of us, we're going on holiday in the next few weeks. And if you're anything like me, you kind of find that you're doing sort of five weeks work in a week just to get ready for a two-week holiday. You know the feeling when you're trying to get through all the emails and get all your meetings done and you, you're sort of struggling on and you're tired and you're shattered and there's one or two things you're not looking forward to. But because you know you're going on a holiday, you think, right, I can get through this. I can see it. This time next week, it'll be okay. I just need to get through these different things. And of course, that's not a perfect illustration, but it reminds us that one day it will be okay. And life on earth is simply a blink. So we keep going. We keep fighting. We keep going for Jesus because one day we'll be with him forevermore. I always find it remarkable because so often when you hear from the persecuted church, you are going through incredible hardship for the gospel. So often they say that if there's no desire to walk away from Jesus, they just want to increase their faith and they just have a real sense of security and hope because they know that this life is not the full story. What does it mean for us to have a faith that is it one of an eternal perspective? The second one I want to think about is freedom. How do we have freedom? Throughout Revelation, we see the story of the Bible kind of interwoven through the story of Revelation. So John refers to the Babylonians and the Persians and the Rome and the people of Greece. He refers to the different empires, the different major empires, the different superpowers. So Babylon was a superpower and it was intimidating, it was powerful and it was oppressive and it challenged the Jewish culture and life. And its values in very clearly, from according to John in Revelation, are not what God's people should be following. John even contrasts the two, saying one is the church, which is the bride, but Babylon is the prostitute. This is harsh language. And then we see the Persian Empire being mentioned, and this again is a large, domineering and powerful empire competing with the rule and reign of God. And many of us will know about the Roman Empire, where they were a superpower and known for their infrastructure and organization, but also their brutality and their notorious poor treatment of Jesus and others. And then there was the Greeks renowned for their intellect and knowledge. And it challenges these things and said that these are worldviews and there will be more worldviews coming. There's different perspectives, there's different superpowers, there's different entities, and there will continue to be in this life. And we know of them even in the last few years and generations of different empires rising up, different worldviews rising up. But this story in Revelation deliberately makes us think and says, okay, these are some of the ways of living. These are some of the ways of living, but if you live for me, if you live with eternity with me, then you don't need to worry about these worldviews and these perspectives because your desire is to live in freedom in me. 
because I'm on the throne, it says clearly I'm on the throne, everything is shaped by how I live. Everything is shaped by who I am. So why don't we for a moment think what are those perspectives and worldviews and empires and idols in our lives that are causing distraction? What are those things that are taking our eyes off the prize for Jesus? When are we trying to live for self or being materialistic or trying to keep up with the other parents at the school gates or worrying about how we spend our money on earth and trying to save it when actually are we buying things for eternal value? Are we valuing too much intellect and knowledge and not actually being completely dependent on God? What are those things that are creeping in and shaping how we live here on earth? Because there is freedom because he is on the throne. We're called to a different way of living because he's coming to a world that's going to be restored and recreated by him. In this passage, the Alpha and Omega has arrived. And this doesn't just mean the beginning and the end. It also means the source and the goal. It's basically saying everything is dependent on him. In heaven, when heaven's presence comes down, the only thing in there is God. Because God is enough. God is the source of all joy, all hope, all peace, everything. He's always enough. The less we have of human things, the more dependent we are on God, the more full and blessed we are. We are his people and our identity and security and value comes from freedom in him, not from alternative worldviews. And like I say, amidst the persecution of God's people in the book of Revelation, he's saying, look, stick to me. Live to me because these are my values. This is my kingdom. Yes, it's not fully complete yet, but these are the values and kingdom life that I want you to be part of and I want you to be involved with and live for. Living with faith, living with freedom, and finally living with focus. This passage describes how one day heaven will come down to earth and heaven will meet earth and God's dwelling place heaven will meet earth and the streams of life will come down and the heaven comes down to heal the land throughout revelation we see that heaven is referred to as the healing the presence of God healing the world the presence of God bringing the healing of God and his presence and glory to us heaven is the environment of God's glory therefore it heals everything and anything it touches what does it mean for us to kind of just seek through prayer and desire for God's heavenly realm to come down here on earth? I saw a documentary a few days ago around the Hebridean revival. And what they said there was in the Hebridean revival, the people were saturated by God's presence. That is when heaven comes down, when God's glory comes down, when his power comes down, when his presence comes down. So one day heaven will come down and God will dwell amongst his people. But what does that mean for us now? And we often talk about it's the now, but not yet. So we know that this world has not been fully restored yet. We know it's not been fully recreated as yet. Because until Jesus returns, there will still be sin and we will still be suffering. But we have a privilege and responsibility to be people who believe that God can work through us and effectively bring heaven to earth, to show glimpses of heaven, to bring God's glory and presence to here on earth to see healings, to believe in salvation, to see creation being restored, to see creativity in all its fullness. I love what C.S. Lewis said, if you aim at heaven, you get earth. If you aim for the values of heaven, if you aim for heaven to come down, you get the best of earth. What does it mean to focus on 
the belief that God wants to dwell amongst his people forevermore. He wants to presence himself, but we want to be part of the restoration here and now. Soon after this letter was written, God's people in so about AD 90 went through a really severe pandemic and the Rome, the unconquerable Rome was seeing 35,000 people killed each day because of this virus, this pandemic. I know it's a bit of an irony talking about it in this period. But what happened was the doctors fled, the wealthy people fled, but the Christians remained. And what happened is they helped people and people literally had their human lives to thank because of the church stepping up. They had their salvation to thank because they came to know Jesus through the incredible acts of his Christians. The church grew exponentially. The church absolutely rocketed. And it wasn't because their goal was to see Christianity expand. It wasn't because their goal was to plant churches. It wasn't because their goal was to see people come to know Jesus. Their goal was simply to see Jesus come on earth, to simply see the presence of Jesus work through his people. What does it look like to believe that heaven is coming down through his people, but we are until he returns, just desiring his presence and his glory to work in and through his people. One day we see in scripture that the four relationships will be fully restored, our relationship with ourselves, so that people will know their identity and security and hope in Jesus. One day our creation will be fully restored and creation will be in all its beauty. One day, people will be reconciled. There will be no more sin and suffering and hardship and hurt between individual and broken relationships. And one day, people will meet their saviour forevermore. But what does that mean for us now? That means that we have a responsibility to help people realise that their identity and security and value is in Jesus, to restore their relationship to themselves, to be part of recreation, to be part of helping create you and be all its beauty and glory to help people be reconciled by the power of the cross, whether it's broken relationships, help them be healed in their relationships. And ultimately, and most importantly, help people realize that they need to encounter Jesus. It gives us focus. It gives us a sharp focus and clear direction to say, actually, we've only got finite time on earth. I want to help build the kingdom. I want to help bring heaven down to earth. And I want to ensure that I can tell as many people as I can hear about the incredible hope I have in Jesus. I never forget in our previous job, we were in Gloucestershire, and as one of my jobs, I was involved in running a football team of young people chucked out of school, and it was flipping brutal at times. But one day we took them to a day where the idea was there would be paintballing and sports and go-karting and all this kind of stuff, and they'd also hear a kind of gospel presentation, a chance to receive kind of Jesus for themselves. We... Decided to meet him at McDonald's at seven o'clock. It was very much an incentive to get him out of bed to kind of meet at McDonald's. And we got there and we got on the main roads. And on the M25, it should have got taken from at seven o'clock to get there sort of nine o'clock. We were stuck on the M25 for like four hours. We arrived at one o'clock, right? And if you imagine just sitting in a car with four other people of, you know, young offenders for a reason, it was a long four hours. They'd keep saying to me, Andy, Andy, can we go and have a, a joint? I was like, no, no, you can't go and smoke a joint. Andy, Andy, can you go and smoke, we can have a joint? I was like, no, you can't. Andy, can go for a walk. Go on then. But anyway, the point being was that they were just like, you know, taking this day and we, we got there and they were so angry and frustrated because they'd been looking forward to this day. They had literally been in the car six or seven hours. We got there 
And I kind of hoped they would change the program because there's a bit of a talk over lunchtime. And what actually happened was they insisted on starting with the talk for an hour. And I was like, these guys have just been in the car for seven hours. They've, they've come here not because they want to hear about Jesus. They've come here because they want to see paintballing and go-karting and all that kind of stuff. They sat down for an hour and most of them gave me a real hard time. Why are we even here? This has been a rubbish day and even worse words than you can imagine. But this one lad, Luke, was just engaged. He was just gripped by it. And anyway, we kind of did some things in the afternoon, got back, and most of them made it very clear that it was, you know, one of the worst days of their lives, and that I was a complete idiot. And I remember just sitting on the sofa with Adele that evening thinking, yeah, that was really worthwhile. I'm really glad I gave some time to that. A few days later, Luke tragically passed away. I still don't know his story. It was, could have been suicide. It could have been a fight. It was in Newquay, but he fell off a cliff. Suddenly, I was like, my goodness, I don't know how he responded to that day. I know he was engaged. I know he was engrossed. But suddenly it was worthwhile. Suddenly the pain and struggle I went through was worth it because there was a reason to share the good news of him because he had a very short life on earth. When we know that the story of the kingdom is coming, it increases our urgency, it increases our desire to be focusing on things of eternal value. We want to invest in things of eternal value. We want to be going after things. We've got a short time here on earth. Let's really do what we can to restore the values and the kingdom in all its beauty and power. I read a few years ago that Olympians had a survey and they were asked whether they would rather die at 25 with a gold medal or live for a normal life without a gold medal. And 75% of them said they'd rather die at 25 with a gold medal than live a whole life without one. I share that because that is incredible focus. That is an incredible desire to keep going for the prize. I'm not saying it's right, but for us, when we've got a prize which is way more important and beautiful than a gold medal, when we've got a destination which is way more fantastic than simply standing on a podium at the Olympics, it really creates an urgency. It really gives us a focus here on Earth. What does it look like to have a faith that is based on our eternal perspective, a freedom, not on the worldviews around us, but to live a distinctive and attractive life? And what does it look like for us to live with a focus, a razor-sharp focus and valuing the things of eternal value? Let me pray for us. Yeah, Father, I just pray right now. That something of your goodness and hope would be resonating in our hearts i pray that this would not be something which convicts us or condemns us but something that actually just encourages us and spurs us on to be serving and living for you lord holy spirit just come come and presence yourself here come and presence yourself at home i pray just very clearly right now there'd be a sense of you just saying what of the last 20 or so minutes is helpful for each of us to hear what is it you want to say to us lord where do you want to challenge and encourage us? And I also pray for those who are perhaps tuning in or here this morning who wouldn't even call themselves Christians. I pray that they would just be so excited about potential to follow you and have eternity with you, regardless of any sin, of any brokenness, of any pain, that they are welcome at your table, Lord. Holy Spirit, just come, we pray. Amen.